Welcome to episode 101 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we're looking at Synchrony, Season 4, Episode 19. The original air date was April 13th, 1997. The IMDb user score has risen from 7.7 to 7.9 out of 10 after the Fox 200 Days Marathon, and the action primarily takes place in Massachusetts. Basic rundown of the episode is that there are some people who are working on cryogenic freezing and trying to develop that technology, who start getting killed off by an older gentleman. Eventually, Mulder realizes that the older gentleman is actually a time-traveling version of one of the young researchers now. This explains why the young guy's fingerprints show up at crime scenes that, as far as they know, they don't have access to, and so forth. Although Scully's instinct is that the two of them are just collaborating. So the cast includes Hiro Kanagawa. This is his second of three X-Files appearances. He previously appeared in Firewalker, and then will appear again in the 2015 Revival series, specifically the episode My Struggle that we discussed at the time. Other cast members include Joseph Fuqua, that's F-U-Q-U-A. He's best known for Gettysburg, Gods and Generals, David Searching, and Ed's Next Move. He plays the younger version of Dr. Jason Nichols. He would later appear in Deep Space Nine and The Pretender and a few other similar genre shows. His last IMDb credit is from 2003. Susan Lee Hoffman plays Lisa. She's best known for Outbreak in the Line of Fire, Bad Influence, and a few others. Most recently credited in 1999 as Dr. Tyson from Angel. Well, that was an uncredited role. She's also in Diagnosis Murder and a few other things, so this is one of her last credits as well. Now, Michael Fairman is a little more recognizable. He plays the older version of Jason from the future. This is a guy with 148 credits to his name, some of which are very recent, including late 2016, but he was Patrick Murphy in 186 episodes of The Young and the Restless. He's been in Monk, Crash, Medium. He was Adelaide Niska in Firefly, possibly his best-known role to a lot of Bureau 42 listeners and readers. He was also in Mulholland Drive and a number of other shows including L.A. Law, Deep Space Nine, Cheers. We're talking about a career that goes back to 1971. We've also got Jed Reese in a very brief appearance, because he is actually the first murder victim, so he doesn't even survive to the opening credits. He may be best known for playing Teb in Galaxy Quest, but he was also a recruiter in Deadpool, he's been in The Ringer, Elizabethtown, and a number of other shows. This is his only X-Files appearance in 69 credits. Jim Charleston directed this episode. He's also known for directorial contributions to Nash Bridges, Hill Street Blues, Northern Exposure, and No Way Out. This is his third of four directing credits in The X-Files, all in 1996 and 97. So his last directing work on The X-Files will be coming up later this season. More notably are the writing credits. We actually have Howard Gordon, who's written 20 episodes of The X-Files in total. This is 19 out of 20 on that list. So we are very nearly done with Howard Gordon's contributions to the series. Now, Howard Gordon's future credits would also include an episode of Buffy and three episodes of Angel. So perhaps it's not surprising that the co-writer credited on this episode is David Greenwald. This is Greenwald's only episode of The X-Files as a writer, although he does appear as a producer on eight episodes and has been since Tempest Fugit, so this is his third executive producer credit on the X-Files, and he'll 
be on as executive producer or co-executive producer through the end of this season. But he will end up going on to contribute to eight episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and then act as co-creator of Angel. So he ends up with some level of writing credit on the full 110 episodes, including 12 written by, 6 story, and 3 teleplay. As for the episode itself, it is just a time travel story where a man regrets his past and he comes back to try and derail his past to end his creation. And that's because this cryogenic freezing somehow leads to the ability to travel through time. And when anybody can go anywhere and see anything and the world has no history, apparently life just becomes completely boring. And they've kind of destroyed people's ability to enjoy the future. So Jason is coming back to try and prevent it. Now he's able to derail a lot of it, but Mulder and Scully are saying, well, it must still be created because, you know, hey, he came back, there's something going on here. And it ends with one of the few survivors, namely Lisa, working ahead and filling in the next part of the puzzle with a molecule that's chemically impossible as far as we can tell. And that's part of the point is when we see this model on our computer screen, it's nothing that actually could exist. So that was their way to kind of show it as super science and something beyond our understanding. She's done something that we believe to be impossible at the moment. So namely, she's created a molecule that includes a number of atoms of the noble gases. Noble gases are considered incredibly stable and really don't form molecules because of the way quantum mechanics works. So to dig into the science of this episode a bit, at this point, time travel of anything including mass does not appear to be a possibility. Yeah, we can talk about wormholes and how we may be able to use that to move backwards in time during the space-time continuum, but if you try sending anything with mass or energy through a wormhole, it collapses in less time than it takes you to travel through it. So the universe does seem to have cause and effect hard-coded into it. Even if it didn't, it would be a huge leap to go from cryogenic freezing to time travel. There's no way to really see the connection between those two, which was part of the storyline here, is this was an unforeseen consequence and just a piece of that puzzle. Now, in terms of the molecule, picking it out specifically to make it impossible, helium is one of the noble gases. Now, how reactive things are depend on their electron arrangements. There's only certain permitted orbits in any atom for the electrons to to orbit in. And these orbits are represented on the periodic table. The lowest energy orbit has room for two electrons, which is why the first row only has two elements. The next two groups of orbits contain eight each, which is why those rows have eight. Then it's 18 and so forth. So if you're on the far right column of the periodic table, then all the lowest energy orbits that you could fill and still have an electrically neutral atom, are completely filled. So both of the spots in the lowest energy, that top row, are filled. If you go to the second row, well then, all 10 of those spots are filled, and so forth. Moving an electron from one of those orbits into one of the other allowed orbits takes a tremendous amount of energy because of the way they're connected. And it's going to be unstable because it may fall back into that atom, eject that energy, and then you have to put that energy back in to get it out again. So the least stable elements are the ones that are just one space off of those noble gases. If you try going one space right, then you loop around and go to the first entry in the next column of the table, the far left column. If you go one space left and have one electron fewer than it takes to fill those, then you end up with things like fluoride and chlorine and so forth. So those two rows are incredibly volatile with that stable noble gas right in between. So in showing a molecule that has a lot of helium atoms in it, it would be incredibly unstable. If you could somehow force it into that configuration, odds are one of the electrons would fall down around the helium atom and create something incredibly volatile 
release that energy, and then the helium just drifts off on its own. So there's a few impossibilities or things that they just don't even bother to explain, and that's because the point of this is meeting yourself from the future. There's really no way to make any of this happen with science. So I think they actually made a pretty good choice in just saying, we didn't realize it would lead to this, but it did, and not even try to explain it, and have the future scientist come back and say, we need to stop this from happening. So he's got a motive not to try and explain it. Something like Mary Shelley's original Frankenstein novel, which doesn't explain how Victor put his creation together. There's no indication that he was sewing together dead body parts or anything like that. That was an invention of the movies. All you get from it in the novel is, I figured this out, but it ended so badly, I'm not going to write down how I did it for fear of people reproducing those results. It's a similar attitude here. So all in all, it's a very entertaining and enjoyable episode. It is a different take on time travel by having one of the character's future self come back to try and prevent it by killing himself or destroying his own career. But ultimately, it doesn't really play a large part of the larger mythos. Neither does the episode we'll be looking at next time, although that does tend to be a fan favorite. So join us again in two weeks for Small Potatoes. Please don't forget to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. And finally, thank you for listening.